3: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 16 The Incident Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we touched on the ways which Parliament, during and after their political victories over Charles I, Archbishop William Lord, and the Earl of Strafford, began to enact religious reforms. We saw how the success and popularity of these reforms varied across England and Wales, sometimes leading to passionate scenes of iconoclasm, as parishioners targeted hated symbols of creeping popery for destruction and sometimes leading to passionate scenes of preservation, as parishioners attempted to protect treasured symbols of religious devotion from destruction. And of course, as always, there were plenty of reactions falling between these two extremes. We left off with Charles travelling north to visit Scotland for the second time in less than a decade. Now he's just spoiling them. Considering the situation in England, one might wonder why the king chose to risk leaving London and to visit a kingdom which had, less than a year ago, been in rebellion against him, whose leadership had allies among his parliamentary critics. But there are a few reasons why Charles chose to go. Firstly, the facade of unity among the Covenanters was beginning to crack. With the increasing dominance of the Earl of Argyll, a group of Scottish nobles centred around James Graham, the Earl of Montrose, were increasingly concerned by the populist implications of the movement, says Tim Harris. Partly this was personal. Argyle and Montrose were not friends, and both were suspicious of the other. Argyle suspected Montrose's allegiance to the Covenant was not as strong as it should be, with his generous treatment of royalists such as the Marquess of Huntley at Aberdeen in 1639. If you recall, Montrose had promised Huntley safe conduct in order to negotiate but when the other Covenanter leaders arrived, including Alexander Leslie, they ignored his promise and arrested Huntley. Later, in July 1640, Montrose had garrisoned Airely Castle in Angus. Airely was the seat of the O'Gilvies of Airely, friends of Montrose, and their patriarch had been rewarded by Charles for his loyalty by being made the Earl of Airely in 1639. A year later, Airely sat in the path of Argyll's anti-royalist campaign, Montrose occupied the site in the name of the Covenanters, and so hoped to spare it the wrath of Argyll. However, Argyll was not to be deflected, especially by such a blatant infringement on his jurisdiction. Montrose's men were evicted from the property, and Argyle had the house burnt and its defences levelled, before burning another of the earl's houses. Again, Montrose had been generous to royalists, and again he had been overruled. For his part, Montrose suspected the aims of Argyle. It isn't accurate to call Montrose a royalist, at least at this stage, but he was, as Barry Robertson puts it, quote, clearly a man looking for ways to build bridges with the king, though Robertson insists that he in no way wished to abandon the initial ideas and aims of the National Covenant. So, the radical path which Argyle was treading concerned Montrose and many of those around him. If they weren't careful, Argyle would ride the Covenant in cause all the way to the top, eliminating any meaningful royal authority and leaving him the unrivalled ruler of Scotland. That was the fear, anyway. And these fears led to a gathering in August 1640 at Cumbernauld House. Here, twenty magnates signed a short document which swore to uphold the Covenant against quote, "...the particular and indirecting practicings of a few." The wording was deliberately vague, but it essentially bound the twenty nobles into an anti-Argyle faction. It was not, as Robertson highlights, a royalist document. Charles is barely mentioned. Most of the signatories had been with the Covenanters since the early days. Some had sat on the Privy Council before signing the National Covenant. All but one could be considered moderate Covenanters at this stage. I won't list all the names, but it's worth pointing out a few of them. One was James Livingston, Lord Almond, After signing this bond, Almond would depart on campaign as the second-in-command to Alexander Leslie. More on him later. The Earl Marshal was also a signatory, as were the Earls of Athol, Mar, Perth, and Galloway. Most of these men could be considered moderates. The exception to this is perhaps Lord Cucubri, who was and would remain a radical covenanter. The larger intentions of the Cumbernauld Bond, as it became known, beyond merely aligning these nobles into an anti argyle faction, is unclear. It united a variety of Covenanter figures by their opposition to Argyle, but it didn't become a cause celebre. Initially, it remained a secret, but that lasted all of three or four months before someone talked, because someone always talks. This time, it was the deathbed confession of one of the signatories, Lord Robert Boyd, who was dying of fever. The immediate fallout of this revelation was limited. Many of the signatories were commanders in the army, and far too important to alienate over the Bond. Edward Cohen covers this episode in his biography of Montrose, Some of the ministers and other fiery spirits called for his blood, but Montrose coolly produced a copy of the band, it had possibly been drawn up with just such an eventuality in mind, and Argyll, noting the names of the signatories, some of whom commanded regiments in the army, backed off. But for Argyll and his supporters, it was yet another mark against Montrose, and the bond was nevertheless burnt by the hangman. Montrose's reputation amongst the other Covenanters was not helped by the discovery of his secret correspondence with the King in September 1640. At this point, the contents of these letters were fairly innocent, claims of love and loyalty to Charles much like other leading Covenanters were proclaiming. However, even as Montrose found himself increasingly isolated politically, he maintained his correspondence with the King, and continued to work against Argyle. In February 1641, Montrose visited the Lord Stormont and the Earl of Athol, and here met John Stuart of Ladywell. The Laird had a very interesting story. Ladywell reported that he had heard Argyll declare that kings could be deposed by their subjects for reasons including sedition, desertion, and invasion. Quote, And that once they thought to have done it at the last sitting of Parliament, and would do it at the next sitting thereof. Over April and May, rumors spread, and the Committee of Estates, prompted by Argyle, investigated. Eventually, the trail led to Montrose, and he openly stated to the committee that, quote, "I named Argyle as the man who was to have the rule beneath the fourth, and as the man who discoursed of deposing the king." Argyle naturally denied the accusation, and so Montrose named Ladywell as his source. Ladywell appeared before the committee, and declared that Argyle had indeed discussed deposing Charles. Argyle raged at the accusation and at Ladywell, who was then imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle. Cohen states that the Covenanters, quote, took steps to tamper with his memory, end quote, which is one hell of a euphemism. Ladywell was persuaded, either by coercion or intimidation or torture, to change his mind. Soon, he was begging Argyle to be allowed to reappear before the committee. Now, he recanted, saying that Argyle had been speaking in the abstract, not specifically about Charles or about the Stuarts, but about all kings, about the nature of kingship and politics. Ladywell was tried and executed in July for spreading false testimony though someone who was with him in his final hours believed that the laird had been truthful in his original testimony. Montrose had miscalculated. Argyle was far more politically talented than Montrose had expected, and far more popular than Montrose within the Covenanter regime. Ladywell had also revealed that Montrose and a number of those around him had been in secret contact with the king through an intermediary. That intermediary, Lieutenant Colonel Walter Stewart, was intercepted the next time he crossed into Scotland and his papers were searched, and lo and behold, being carried by the officer was a letter from Charles addressed to Montrose. And what did this clandestine correspondent say? Nothing particularly exciting. Charles was merely reiterating that he would be travelling to Scotland in the near future. However, this was the final straw, Montrose was himself arrested on the 11th of June and confined to Edinburgh Castle. He was deemed a troublemaker, whose antics put the peace of Scotland and the peace of the Three Kingdoms at risk. Though even while imprisoned, Montrose continued to write to the king, and his insights and his rather public opposition to Argyll gave Charles the hope that the Covenant of Regime was far from united. Along with these internal divisions, Charles' hopes were buoyed by the negotiations for the Treaty of London, which had exposed how the English and Scots disagreed over their lasting peace. Even the radical reformers in the English Parliament didn't want to copy the Scottish Kirk wholesale, and the endless debates over the abolition of the Episcopacy hardly filled the Covenanters with confidence. Aware of these two weaknesses in his enemies, internal covenanting divisions and fundamental disagreements between the Covenanters and the English Radicals, Charles travelled north to see if he could turn things to his advantage. Julian Goodair argues that by this point, Charles had already resigned himself to a military confrontation with Parliament. Maybe not envisioning a full civil war, but perhaps one of his army plots would actually be successful. In the event of this, the last thing the King wanted was for the covenanting war machine to march against him once again. In a perfect world, Charles might be able to win them to his side, but even he must have known this was unrealistic. However, Covenanter neutrality would be a victory in its own right. Whether this neutrality came from a break between the Covenanters and their English allies, or from internal distraction brought about by divisions within their ranks, non-intervention was non-intervention. The Scottish visit was meant to win friends and influence people. One of those possible friends was Lord General Alexander Leslie. We haven't seen much of Leslie for a few episodes, but as the king travelled north, he met with his former enemy at Newcastle. The Covenanter army, then preparing for their withdrawal from England, was drawn up before the king. Then they had dinner together, an enormous honour for anyone and especially for someone born at Leslie's status. True, he had since risen high, and he'd been on personal terms with other kings like Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, but still. Yet for all his success, Leslie still had higher to climb, and Charles provided another rung of the ladder. At this meeting, the king announced that he would raise Leslie to the rank of Earl. This was certainly part of his PR campaign, but was also, Steve Murdoch and Alexia Grosjean state, a mark of respect Leslie's conduct in war. For his part, Leslie swore to be the king's loyal subject. The Covenanters were victorious, after all, and it was hardly like Charles could simply turn back the clock on the revolution. Charles and Leslie would share a coach while the king was in Edinburgh, travelling through cheering crowds, king and rebel general, defeated and victorious, in a display of amity and friendship. On the 23rd of September, Charles would make good on his promise, Alexander Leslie was made 1st Earl of Leithen, along with his second-in-command, Lord Almond. But in what Charles always insisted was a simple clerical error, now Earl of Leithen discovered that his second-in-command, now Earl of Callender, had his title dated a week earlier than his own. Callender therefore took precedence over Leithen, and it was a snub which Leithen believed was deliberate. Leven and Callander were not the only Covenanters rewarded for their rebellion. The Earl of Argyll was promoted to a Marquessate, becoming the Marquess of Argyll, so no need to remember another name. As an aside, when the Covenanter army left Newcastle, they made sure to destroy the fortifications that they'd built and removed their artillery. Better safe than sorry, after all. Once the bulk of the force was several miles away, Leslie turned around and returned to the city with only a small guard. Once there, he asked the locals if there were any outstanding debts, which they had been cautious to bring up with the Covenanters while several thousand armed men were in the city. Charles arrived in Edinburgh on the 14th of August and set about attempting to win back his Scottish subjects, and he appears prepared to take several slices of humble pie, On his first day in Edinburgh, he was criticised by Alexander Henderson for failing to attend a Presbyterian sermon. Afterwards, he attended every sermon. When the Parliament opened on the 17th, Lord Balmerino was permitted to preside over it. Balmerino had been condemned for treason by Charles in the 1630s. Charles also belatedly surrendered to the Constitutional Revolution which had taken place the previous year. His opening speech declared his eagerness to ratify the Acts of the 1640 Parliament. Now, this actually led to an outcry from the Covenanter leadership, since it suggested that those Acts were not already legally binding. Charles suggested an alternative path. He would have the Acts published in his name, but not touch them with his sceptre. By publishing them in his name, he would give his approval to the Acts, including the abolition of the Scottish bishops, while not giving his royal assent acknowledged the Scottish Parliament's constitutional right to pass laws without needing it. The Treaty of London was ratified by the King, and an act of oblivion was passed, which pardoned vast swathes of Scottish society who had acted against the Covenanters, though not everyone. The Earl of Traquair was excluded, as were the Scottish Bishops, A wave of royalist nobles now signed the Covenant, including Hamilton and Lennox. More on this later. After a month of resistance, Charles also caved on the final bulwark of royal control, his sole right to appoint judges, officers of state, and privy councillors. Parliament insisted that these positions required their advice and consent. After a select committee discussed this and voted for it, Charles gave his assent to an act which was passed on the 16th of September. The new reality was made explicitly clear a few weeks later, when Charles found several of his new Privy Council appointees rejected by Parliament. Charles hadn't enjoyed any of this. He'd grinned and bared it, he'd suffered through what Good Air calls a stage-managed covenanting Parliament. I'm sure he despised the Kirk sermons with their lack of pomp and ceremony, At the very least, he must have harboured resentment, if not hatred, for the men who had brought him so low. And yet, with the stakes so high in England, this would all be worth it if Scotland would back their king, or at least abandon his enemies. And yet, and yet, this link between the English and Scottish parliaments was remarkably resistant. The Junto, the leading parliamentary opposition to Charles, had not left this solely to chance. John Pym had dispatched a delegation, including John Hampden and Nathaniel Fiennes, to remind the Covenanting leadership of how good they were together, and to urge them to think about what they had achieved. Not only that, but the Covenant position only appeared to be getting stronger. The Marcus of Hamilton, who had been Charles's loyal man during the Scottish Crisis, was increasingly close to the Covenanting leaders, including Argyll. Whether he actually defected, using Harris's words, is debated. Hamilton returned to Scotland alongside Charles and struck up a friendship with Argyle. Hamilton's influence at court had been waning, even as his ties to Charles's English opponents became stronger. How much of this was at the King's urging is unclear, but as Charles's efforts to woo the Covenanters to his side stalled, Hamilton's loyalties increasingly came under suspicion. These suspicions almost led to bloodshed, when a pissed-up lordling tried to take matters into his own hands. The son of the Earl of Roxburgh, Lord Kerr, marched into Edinburgh in September after enjoying a tipple or two. He called Hamilton a traitor and challenged him to a duel. Cooler heads prevailed and the duel didn't take place, with Hamilton himself requesting leniency for Kerr for disturbing the peace. But it didn't end there. Called to answer for his actions before the king... Kerr initially stood his ground and said he could prove that Hamilton was indeed a traitor. This confidence lasted all of five minutes, and Kerr soon admitted that his accusations were, quote, "...without any ground and merely from passion." His father, Roxburgh, begged his son, with tears in his eyes, to smooth things over with the Scottish Parliament. But Kerr was not done causing a scene. He duly appeared before Parliament but he did so escorted by more than 500 armed soldiers. This, understandably, spooked Parliament, and they called up the Edinburgh Militia. Kerr's party was ordered to disband under pain of death, and once he did so, the Lordling was made to sign a document retracting his accusations against Hamilton. While the Kerr episode was resolved relatively peacefully, it had fanned the flames of faction. Because now we return to Montrose. Who spent Charles's entire visit locked in a cell in Edinburgh Castle? His enemy, Argyle, was ascendant. His Cumbernauld band had been exposed. His witness to Argyle threatening to depose Charles had been discredited and executed. His position did not look good, to put it mildly. But Montrose kept up his correspondence with Charles, and he continued to warn the king about the intentions of Argyle. And not just Argyle, but of Hamilton, too. He had evidence, he claimed, that both the other marquises were traitors, and he wished Charles to visit him at Edinburgh Castle so he could prove it. Charles never did visit the imprisoned Montrose, but he didn't entirely ignore his claims. They fanned the flames of suspicion at court against Hamilton and Argyll, and as negotiations continued to grant concession after concession to the Covenanters, a frustrated Charles Consented to a bold plan. He was tired of appeasing these traitors.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumpercasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void We're prohibited by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Some of
1: us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress, Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd
2: like to tell you a story. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the Golden Age of Piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates we examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast.
3: On or around the 11th of October, 1641, a plan was put into motion by Royalist officers. The Marquis of Hamilton, the Earl of Argyll, and Hamilton's younger brother, the Earl of Lanark, were all in Edinburgh for the Parliament. They were to be seized. Once captured, the men were to be taken to the port of Leith, and there taken aboard a ship. At this point, they were either to be taken elsewhere to be tried for treason, or simply murdered, to put a final end to their plotting. Charles gave his approval to the plan. But then, someone talked. Someone always talks. And the whole plot fell apart. This was the incident. It's very important you say it in that way. How did we get here? Well, the incident was several months in the making, and involved a wide variety of courtiers, nobility, and army officers. In August... Colonel John Cochrane met with a gentleman of the bedchamber, William Murray. He swore he had information which the king needed to hear. Information about Hamilton. Cochrane and Murray met at least three times to discuss this. Possibly at Cochrane's prompting, in September, Murray then went to visit Montrose at Edinburgh Castle. The imprisoned Earl informed him that he too had information which the king needed to hear. Montrose asked to speak with the king, but Murray insisted that he put it in writing, and he would give it to Charles himself. This was done, but Charles was not impressed by the scribblings of Montrose. Montrose tried again a few days later, with a more detailed explanation of what had been going on, but again Charles dismissed it. Partly this was politics. Charles told Murray, that, because many of his subjects believed that he was intent on spreading division within the Covenanter ranks, which, as an aside, he absolutely was, quote, he would therefore let his people see that he would not entertain any motions that might seem to make interruptions, end quote. By publicly ignoring the claims of Montrose, whose behaviour had, after all, led him to a cell in Edinburgh Castle, Charles hoped to bolster his image as a monarch willing to deal with the Covenanter regime. As it stood. Also, Charles rightly pointed out that anyone in Montrose's position, imprisoned, facing punishment up to and including the death penalty, would do anything to speak to the King and win his intercession. But, while he publicly distanced himself from Montrose's claims, Charles was not blind to the opportunity. Colonel Cochrane was taken to Charles's bedside for a late night private chat. And interestingly, when the armies were disbanded, Cochrane's regiment was not. His was one of only three regiments kept mustard. Later, while drinking, Cochrane boasted to his officers that he would make their fortunes. On the following Sunday, Lord Almond returned to his Edinburgh house to find that Colonel Cochrane, the Earl of Crawford, Lord Ogilvy, Lord Grey and William Murray were there drinking his beer and waiting for his arrival. Murray then asked if everyone had heard what Montrose was claiming. Almond called the allegations, quote, very hard and very strange. Crawford opined that if Hamilton was a traitor, then he deserved a traitor's death. The next day, on the 11th of October, Captain William Stewart met Alexander Stewart at a winehouse early in the morning. Alexander was an officer in Cochrane's regiment, and after checking that the room was empty of eavesdroppers, he rather dramatically placed his loaded pistols on the table, and swore the other Stuart to secrecy. So, who was William Stuart? Well, William Stuart was the nephew of Sir James Stuart, Lord Oakletree, who had been imprisoned for accusing Hamilton of planning to usurp the Scottish throne. Alexander plied William with drink and asked him why he did not petition the king for his uncle's release. Increasingly drunk, William retorted, "'Who can petition the is of such power with the king that it is folly for any man to speak? All was true what my uncle said, and it's clear as light that the Marquis was a traitor.'" He continued, declaring that Hamilton and Argyle had summoned five thousand loyal men to the city in the wake of the Kerr episode, and had been holed up with friends since the early hours of that day. So far, so much harmless drunken banter. But now, Alexander Stewart heightened the stakes. He started laying out an actual plan to deal with the Hamilton situation. He listed off the figures who he believed would support a German solution to the Hamilton problem. With the Thirty Years' War at its height, by a German solution, he meant Hamilton's death. On this list, he placed the earls of Roxburgh, Crawford, and Hume, along with Lord Almond. He also expected that, in the wake of such an act, royalist elements from the city and the surrounding counties would rise up to assist the conspirators. The plan, such as it was, was for William Murray, the gentleman of the bedchamber, to invite Argyle, Hamilton, and Hamilton's younger brother, the Earl of Lanark, to a room in Holyrood Palace. Once the men were isolated from most of their supporters, Lord Almond would emerge through a secret door at the head of a party of soldiers, accuse the men of treason, and arrest them. In the gardens of the palace, the Earl of Crawford would muster 500 men, and with them seize and hold Holyrood, while the traitors were bundled onto the king's ship at Leith. Apparently Crawford had favoured simply killing Hamilton, Lanark, and Argyll, at Holyrood, and dispensing with any judicial time-wasting. However, others within the conspiracy insisted on a trial, key among them Lord Almond. With the traitors safely aboard the king's ship, the rule of the kingdom would return to those loyal to his majesty, and the traitors could be punished. That was the plan, and this is where it all fell apart. I imagine William Stewart had listened to Alexander in the way many people have listened to a friend's rambling at the pub, polite and vaguely supportive, but holding serious doubts. He agreed to meet with Alexander again later in the day, but sent word to Lieutenant Colonel John Hurry, telling him to warn the intended targets of this coup. It should be noted that this account comes from Alexander in the aftermath of the incident so he might have been exaggerating his resistance and opposition to the plot. When the conspirators gathered again at eleven in the morning at another alehouse, their group consisted of Cochrane, Alexander Stuart, the Earl of Crawford, and Lieutenant-Colonel Hurry. Now hang on, if William Stuart had trusted Hurry to warn Hamilton and Argyle, what was he doing at this gathering? And this is where it gets interesting, it appears that when Hurry was informed of the plot, he realised that the best way to stop it was to learn more. Either before or after this meeting, Hurry had rushed to speak with Lord General Alexander Leslie, Earl of Leithen, and told him everything. He was at this meeting because he was a spy. As this meeting broke up, with Crawford swearing to cut the traitors' throats, Another army officer arrived. This was Lieutenant Colonel Hume, and Cochrane took him aside to thank him for his loyalty and repeated his earlier promise to bring his officers fortune. He asked Hume for an oath of secrecy, but Hume refused on the grounds that he had already sworn to the Covenant. If that strikes you as suspicious, then you have keen instincts. Hume was also reporting back to Lord General Leven. In what Cohen calls a convenient and well-calculated coincidence, Montrose chose this day to send another letter to Charles. The king read out his claims of Hamilton's treason to Murray, and either because this time Montrose had made his case well, or because Murray had helped persuade the king, this time Charles took the charges seriously. He would have the letter reproduced and sent to several of Scotland's leading figures, including Argyle and Leven. Everything seemed to be going to plan, and that evening the conspirators met with Cochrane to toast their imminent success. That party included Crawford, Kirkabree, O'Gilvie and Hume, with Hume, spy that he was, enjoying a bit of dramatic irony, My Lord Hume lifted a glass and said this to a good conclusion of all things, they are well on a fair way of accommodating business with the King. That night, the Earl of Argyll, the Marquis of Hamilton, and the Earl of Lanark, fled Edinburgh. As well as the information won by spies within the conspiracy, Charles himself owes some responsibility for the foiled plot. Hamilton had visited him that very day, and in a bumble worthy of Ned Stark, Charles told him about Montrose's allegations and said he believed them, fearing that not only was a plot against their lives in motion, but that the king supported it, he, his brother, and Argyll fled the city. Over the next few weeks, the fallout of the incident dominated political discussions in both Scotland and in England. Naturally, Parliament was very concerned about this plot against their leaders, and they wanted it investigating. Charles disavowed any knowledge or approval of the plot, and he had to concede two covenanted demands for a private inquiry. The incident sparked a surge of support for the regime and did nothing to restore the relationship between Charles and the new Scottish government. But the repercussions of this attempted coup, the incident, were limited, not least because everyone's attention was soon focused on events on the other side of the North Channel, because on the twenty-second of October, sixteen forty-one, Sir Phelim O'Neill visited Charlemont Fort in County Armagh. Once within the walls, O'Neill's men abruptly turned on their hosts, and the fortress was quickly captured. This was just the beginning of a rebellion that would turn into a war, which would last more than a decade. The Irish Rebellion had begun. Thank you to my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, my royal favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, The Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. Rob Coughlin has been promoted to the Earl of Jersey. And welcome to Jethro, Baron Pickering. If you'd like to join their ranks and receive ad-free versions of this and every other episode, go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Thank you to everyone who has left a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you haven't already, it only takes a few minutes and it really helps the show grow. Also consider telling that friend who really needs to hear about the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Everyone has one. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and as always, to you for listening.
1: Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories. Like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.